Hello and welcome to this interview from Faber. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say my special guest in this programme is Dwyane of English crime writers, P.D. James. P.D. James' writing career goes back five decades to the publication of Cover Her Face, her first Adam Dalglish mystery, which was published by Faber and Faber in 1962. Thirteen more books in that series have since followed, as well as other novels, including The Children of Men, a work of autobiography, and in 2009, a non-fiction book entitled Talking About Detective Fiction. And the ranks of her fans have been further increased by TV and film adaptations of most of her books. Despite such a large and varied output, P.D. James' latest book marks a radical departure. Instead of contemporary Britain, we're transported back to Georgian England. More specifically, Pemberley, the Derbyshire estate of Fitzwilliam Darcy, hero of Jane Austen's most popular novel, indeed probably the most popular novel in the English language, Pride and Prejudice. P.D. James' novel, Death Comes to Pemberley, opens in the autumn of 1803. Events have moved on since the end of Austen's novel. Elizabeth and Darcy now have a young family, as do her sister Jane and her husband Charles Bingley, who've come to visit. It's the eve of the annual ball to mark Darcy's late mother's birthday, and while the whole household is involved in preparations for that event, a brutal murder takes place in the wild woods near the house. Death has indeed come to Pemberley, and the rest of the novel seeks to uncover the events that led up to the murder, and a good few other secrets besides. I should reassure you before you listen to the interview that we've been careful not to give anything away that might spoil your enjoyment of the book. When I met P.G. James at her home in Holland Park recently, the first thing I wanted to know was when she'd first encountered Jane Austen and what she'd made of her. Well, um, I came to Jane Austen very young indeed, younger than I would normally have done. And, and funnily enough, it was at a Sunday school in Ludlow. And in this, the room where the Sunday school was held, there was a bookcase and a few books, not necessarily religious ones. I'm not quite sure how they got there. And we were able to borrow them. And I found Pride and Prejudice. And I, I was delighted with it. I think that's rather strange because I don't normally think of Jane Austen as being a children's author. There's a great deal of irony and wit which I think a child might not actually relish. And I dare say I didn't relish it. But of course the story is told, it's straightforward, and it moves very quickly. And I I loved it. And I've read it and reread it ever since, of course. And I'm a great Jane Austen fan. She is overwhelmingly my favourite novelist. Although I would say that my favourite among her books is, in fact, Emma, not Pride and Prejudice. So I wanted to ask you then, what was it about Pride and Prejudice which made you see the possibility of extending the story into the future? I suppose that the world of Pride and Prejudice is, is so familiar to so many people, as it is to me. And I think we all have quite a lively imagination wondering how the marriage worked, how happy they were. We can be assured that this is a fairy story in a way that they would be happy, but how did um, Elizabeth adjust to this very, very different life? I mean, in the book, she realizes, of course, that there's huge difference between being the mistress of Pemberley with so many people, so many servants dependent on her, and running the house that her mother did at Longbourn, so much smaller and that that she had a great deal to learn. And so I think we have just to wonder how they all fared. Did she have any children? What happened? 
And the great many people, in fact, I hadn't realized how many people have written sequels. I wonder if I would have embarked on this book if I'd written. <laughs> I realized how many, but they were not known to me. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to combine my two great enthusiasms, literary enthusiasms, which are for Jane Austen's novels and for writing the classical, as it were, the classical English detective story. Um, and I don't think it would have worked so well. I suppose it could have worked well with, uh, with Emma, when it comes to think about it, because both books have got what is so necessary in my kind of detective fiction, the contrast between an ordered, comfortable, normal, moral life and the appalling intrusion of the worst of crimes. The contrast is very effective, and it would have been just as effective, I think, in Emma. I think in Emma, the Emma would have taken over the whole investigation, undoubtedly. But um, uh, I just thought Pride and Prejudice, and um, and I very much enjoyed exploring it. You mentioned that Pride and Prejudice is a favourite book of yours. It's also a favourite book of many people around the world. And I wondered if you embarked on this project with a degree of trepidation. Oh, yes, I have a great deal of trepidation. I imagine there will be numerous letters in which people either point out what they see as slight inaccuracies, and there may be one or two, it's almost inevitable, or whether they will question my development of the characters and say that they don't think. I don't think that's very likely. I think they will probably be happy with the development of the characters, but there must be words that they would think people wouldn't say at that time. My readers are highly intelligent people, and they're very quick, really, to spot anything that they think isn't quite right and that's rather fun in a way and I hope there'll all be other ones who say that they have enjoyed it and that it hasn't lessened their great delight in the book itself I don't think how it could the book stands it's a great book it's a classic and it's a great love story and I don't think that one can anybody can harm that but I don't think I should go so far as to say that I hope what I've done is worthy of Jane Austen. I don't know if one could say that it would be worthy of it. But I, I hope that she would not be too displeased if she were able to read it. Let's put it like that. Because it was done with huge respect and affection for a, a sparkling book. Uh, I think its great attraction is that it's a happy book. Tragic things happen in it. It all ends happily. Well, it's really a, a romantic book, isn't it? It's romantic fiction, as I've said before. It's Mills and Boone written by a genius. <laughs> and so when you introduce the aspect of crime, inevitably the tone darkens, doesn't it? And that's that sort of sparkle. There, there are obviously, there are, there are moments where, where your book does sparkle, but, but also a darkness does creep in. Yes. Oh, there is darkness. We have the picture of Pemberley, the ordered life of Pemberley, the great happiness of, uh, of Elizabeth and Darcy, the two boys in the nursery, the future assured, and everyone there living a sort of happy, organised life. And then this appalling event, the body in the woodlands, a brutal murder, a particularly brutal and horrible murder. And furthermore, you know, a murder which deeply touches Darcy and his wife, and indeed, of course, his sister. So that it is... Um, it is an appalling tragedy for them, apart from their natural pity and sympathy with the relations of the man who dies. I really like the way you evoked the woodland as a place of, of spirits and suicides and poachers and darkness and sort of impenetrability. And it seemed to me almost as though, you know, something of the Gothic had sort of crept up right to the, right to the margins of Pemberley. It is rather Gothic, isn't it? And it's so different from the, the more formal wood 
which of course was planted by a great expert in the landscape gardening, but the woodland has just been left wild. And of course in it there is this uh, cottage where a previous Darcy shot himself and then uh, after shooting his dog and lived as a recluse. And his influence has profoundly affected the Darcy of the present, as it were, his shyness and the fact that he's been brought up always to believe that his great-grandfather behaved ignobly and that there are responsibilities that he has to the house, to the property, to all the people dependent on him, which should take precedence over everything else, including his private happiness. And so this arouses in him problems because he has put Elizabeth, he has wanted Elizabeth so badly, he has put his need for her above any thought have private happiness at all. The more I thought about it, the more fascinating this great-grandfather of Darcy's became. Because although he doesn't really appear in the book, he's referred to. And at one point, Georgiana, Darcy's sister, and Elizabeth are, are both in the woods. And Georgiana says, at least he managed to escape. Yes. And, and Lizzie says, escape from what? She, and yes. and, and that, that seemed to me to, to be asking a really profound question about the whole ordered yes. nature of, of their society. Yes, indeed. And I think that one time when they're listening to the music, Elizabeth does put it into words that they were living, as she says, in the most civilized country in Europe at the most civilized time, among the beauty of its architecture and its artifacts and its literature. And outside there was another world. And it's almost as if there is Pemberley and outside there is this other world and it is represented by the wild woodlands and what went on there. And of course, what was interesting to me in writing this book, I, I really wanted to confront what I've always seen as a problem of the book. And that is the transformation of Darcy, the complete transformation from being incredibly rude. I mean, when one rereads the proposal and not only the proposal, of course, which he made in person, but the letter which he subsequently writes. No gentleman of any age could have written to a lady, to a woman, in those terms, full of insults to her family and insults to herself. It's incredible. And then very shortly, very shortly afterwards, she meets him at Pemberley and he has completely changed. And I really wanted an explanation of why he was so awful to begin with. What had caused that, this great bitterness of spirit, which really he had almost inherited from the great-grandfather, and the need to show her that he had indeed changed. I think he said he was like a child showing off his toys. Um, and I hope that that's credible. So your book is actually casting light back on the original too. It's, it's not a sort of self-contained. It's also reflecting on events which happened before your book began in, in, in Pride and Prejudice. Yes. And then, of course, um, it also deals with this problem. Why on earth did Darcy ever leave his sister, who was only 15, to the mercies of a woman like Mrs. Young? Why wasn't she at Pemberley? And that too is, is touched on when um, Elizabeth and Darcy are together having this conversation, which as he says, he should have had earlier. So I think we gain a deeper understanding of Darcy and what made him the sort of man he was. Your novel is exploring the pasts of the characters and, yes. and their own their own secrets and their own issues of guilt. Yes. It's, it's more than simply solving a crime, isn't it? 
Yes, I, I think it is, and I think it's intended to be. And of course, when I reread it, um, it, it's wonderful because you always see something new. And this is the one thing I saw, and it's in this book. Between the, se the first proposal, the first contemptible proposal, and the second successful penitent one, those two, Elizabeth and Darcy, only spent about 30 minutes, possibly less than that, in each other's company alone. They had a walk alone when um, Elizabeth and her aunt and uncle came to Pemberley because um, the aunt, Mrs Gardner, walks very slowly and Darcy and Elizabeth walk ahead. So they have some private conversation then, but it would only be while they re-entered the house. And then, of course, he comes next day and finds her in tears with the letter. And he really only stays for five or six minutes. He's off, and we know that he's off when we subsequently learn that he's off to try and find where Lydia and Wickham are. And it's a very short time for such a change. And one can imagine that she was in his mind the whole time. But um, it's not surprising that all the gossips, really, of Madison said um, that she had, you know, it was when she saw Pemberley that she, Elizabeth made up her mind to fall in love with Darcy at the first possible opportunity. <laughs> I think that's in the introduction, there's a different view as seen by outsiders. They see Elizabeth as scheming from the very first moment she saw Darcy to get him as a husband. And I, I've always felt with Pride and Prejudice that we're a little unfair to Mrs. Bennet. I mean, Mrs. Bennet obviously is a dreadful woman. We would all loathe to have Mrs. Bennet as a mother, and she was a continual uh, embarrassment to her two eldest girls. But she was absolutely right about the necessity of finding rich husbands. Because, I mean, nowadays it's almost impossible to imagine what their life would be. The only alternative was to go as a governess, and that was a pretty horrible fate. Otherwise, you lived on the charity of relations. And if um, they hadn't married well, and well enough to ensure that the mother would have a home and the other sisters would have a home if they needed one, what would life would have been as soon as Mr. Bennett died? Well, of course, the Collins would have taken over. They'd be in a cottage on the estate, the poor relations being given, you know, a little food from time to time. And it would be absolutely appalling for a woman of the abilities and of the and of the pride of, of Elizabeth. So the husband hunting, which now seems to us a bit deplorable, was no more than really a life-saving alternative to, to want and privation and um, humiliation. Maybe, Phyllis, we should say that the book opens in, in the autumn of 1803, and how, how have things moved on? Well, we do have the beginnings of understanding that women, as Elveston, but in having um, the young lawyer who obviously becomes um, the lover of uh, Georgiana, falls in love with her throughout, as opposed to the colonel, who's very much of the old school. I mean, he says at one point that it's some generations since we admitted that women have souls, should we now also admit that they have minds? And one of the things that Elizabeth finds, for example, is to have the use of the library, which she never had at home, to be able to read, to be helped to understand these books by a husband who, you know, was, was able to enrich her experience for her, to have dinner parties at which her opinions were listened to with respect, which um, the dinner parties, of course, at Meryton were the same old people the whole time. So she had a much more fulfilled life, and we begin to see that, in fact, I think things were changing, slowly.
Yes, Al- Alveston the lawyer invokes the name of Mary Wollstonecraft, doesn't he? Yes, he does, yes. Well, that book had been published, and of course it had may, had great effect. The colonel would disapprove of it absolutely strongly, of course. He was very much of the old school. But Alveston was a much more a modern man. You get the sense we're, we're in a new century, the 19th century has dawned, and change is beginning to seem possible. Alveston, as well as invoking Mary Wollstonecraft, yes. is also an advocate of legal reform. And there's also a a medical examiner in the book who is investigating new proto-forensic medicine. So you get a sense of things just beginning to change, don't you? Yes, they were. And um, this is the the doctor. And he's an ordinary GP. But um, obviously he's got money and um, he has a certain amount of of spare time. And, And in that age, the scientific investigations were done by amateurs and then they all wrote to the Royal Society which had already been formed and to each other explaining you know what they were doing it's a fascinating idea I, I was imagined letters from say don't do what I said last week the, the kitchen's blown up <laughs> but you know and this man is just interested in forensic medicine and uh, the attitude to that and I, I like the, the, the bit really I, I must say in it when the uh, Hardcastle the investigating magistrate says that um, I suppose you and your clever colleagues can't tell us if blood comes from one body or another and he says we don't set out to be gods and he said but I rather thought you did <laughs> so obviously there's a certain amount of prejudice but I do say that the, that his uh, Neighbours, although um, they might not approve everything he did, obviously realised he had a great international reputation as a sort of amateur scientist. I like to think of them all there working away. So there's this sort of, it really was a remarkable age really, there was this intellectual curiosity, which is admirable, this is changing things. But, um, and, and we're in time to change the law because, um, as the book makes plain in those days, you, you could have um, a lawyer, a, d- a defence lawyer to help you to question the prosecution witnesses, but he could not make a speech at the end of the, the case on your behalf. That came, I think, in the late 1800s. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that aspect, the research that you must have had to do into how investigations and trials were conducted in the early 19th century, which is very different from, you know, from Dalglish's usual stamping ground. Oh, it's terribly difficult, and I did get um, I, I had some help from a historian, and um, also some help from the librarian of the Inner Temple, which is very useful. But um, there aren't there are many trials of that date, particularly. I think I got the main details right, but a lot of the routine of the trial, which I haven't put in, because I think it would um, make it too long. Um, the sort of procedures they went through. But I think the the, uh, the vital part is there, that it really started off with the prosecution and the prosecution witnesses mm-hmm. who could be questioned. Uh, and it may be that some lawyers will say that they feel that questioning is much too much of the present day rather than it would have been that day. But um, certainly you could, did get a good defence lawyer and um, he, he could question the prosecution. The idea seems to be that the prosecution must be very firm, very strong. The idea you really wanted to have the case so strongly made, the evidence so firm, so incontrovertible, that you know that the evidence 
would be sufficient to carry the jury and there would be no doubt in their minds and I think it usually was but certainly at the Old Bailey apparently the trials they were so busy were very very rushed very quick I mean um, this judge says to the jury that you've listened to this long trial I think my secretary said you could hardly call it long but it was certainly long if it took a whole day by the present ones that might be rushed through in a quarter of an hour or 20 minutes so that it was not a perfect the justice but they did attempt to be fair and if in fact there was something obviously wrong with it the, the trial judge would go for a pardon and if the crowd as it says in the book felt strongly enough about it they had a very vocal voice and they were, could be listened to so but I, I think there must well we know there were questions of injustice and people who were innocent were found guilty I know you enjoyed the creation of characters and I I got the strong impression that one of the pleasures of writing this book for you must have been inserting your creations in among Jane Austen's characters. Was that is that so? Yes, I mean Jane Austen's characters were as she she wrote them. We have Lydia, of course it's very much the same Lydia and of course Bigamy is the same easygoing, charming, comfortable man and Darcy very much Darcy. But of course there were the magistrates and the doctors mostly and the coroner which gave me opportunities for creating my own characters as, as I saw them. That was a great joy because one, I mean, I, I didn't, I never for one moment thought I would ever use anyone else's characters simply because for me as a novelist the great joy of writing fiction is the creation of character. And why would you ever want to take somebody else's characters? This seemed to me a unique thing that I'd never normally expect that I would do it. But the, um, the attraction of trying to combine the book with detection proved too much for me really. And I did it and very much enjoyed doing it. But it wouldn't have been satisfactory if I hadn't got the opportunity to create character. And also the servants a bit, Stoughton and Mrs. Reynolds. Mrs. Reynolds appears, of course but we're not told much about her, except she obviously she was a very reliable and old, and, and old servant. But I liked the different doctors very much, and I liked Hardcastle and the contrast between Hardcastle and Darcy as magistrates. Now tell me about capturing the language for this book. How difficult was it to, to get that tone, that diction, just right? I didn't find it difficult because I read Jane Austen so often I fell into it. It was much easier than, for example, trying to write a detective story using Chandler or, or the, uh, the hard-boiled school of America, which I would have found almost impossible to do. But I fell into this. There must be some words, I think, which they would not have used. But on the whole, the rhythm of the speech, the formality of it, I hope that I've sort of caught that and that it that it does read as if it's read, written by someone of her time um, and very much in the style in which she would have written it. But of course one cannot possibly imagine Jane Austen, as she said herself, dealing in these violent emotions. She leaves that on one side. <laughs> so she, she never has. I mean, we certainly have unhappiness, grave unhappiness, disasters and so on, but I can't remember anything. No, there isn't really. Um, they are all love. I mean, it's interesting. The five great novels, and they they all have the same plot, which is that a worthy and attractive woman, a good woman, a good young woman, worthy and attractive, fights her way through difficulties 
to marry the man of her choice. The difficulties are there. Sometimes they can be a woman, like Lady Catherine de Burr. Sometimes they can be poverty. Um, sometimes there can be other problems, but they she wins her way through. So in the end, we get the marriage. But really, even when she gets as far as the engagement, there's a kind of drawing back. There's no, for me in Jane Austen, there's no description of an actual engagement, which is um, more than perfunctory. I think it's in Elizabeth. Well, um, I think it's in Emma. What did she say? She says as every young lady would say. And um, Elizabeth says more, but then she questions him where he first fell in love and um, how did he fall in love? Very Elizabeth, I think. So they had more conversation, but we don't go into marriage. We're told that the marriage is happy and that's enough, but that's the end of it. And so I suppose that's why there's always an attraction in people who love Jane Austen for sort of investigating a bit how things went on, particularly in Pride and Prejudice, when you have the heroine transformed, really, and transferred to such a very different world, an entirely different world, though one must always remember that, um, that she was, as she said, the gentleman's daughter, so that although Mr. Bennett's estate was small, and although he wouldn't have had the resources that the Darcy had, she was a gentleman's daughter. Let me ask you finally, has this given you a taste for historical detective fiction? Can you envisage writing another book set in, in Jane Austen's world? No, no, never, never, no. This is very much a one-off, <laughs> no. Um, and I, I think it succeeded, I have to say that. It's, um, it'll be interesting to see what people's response I'm sure to get a lot of correspondence, largely sort of saying yes, but, or would they have said this, or would they have done that? Because we're so, inter everybody who's a Jainite has used a rather awful expression. We're all passionately interested in the lives of these people, and they live in our imagination. So I'm sure I shall have all sorts of queries, and rather more posts than I'm able to deal with. But um, no, it was it was a great interest to do it. And um, returning to the book, one one had fresh insights really into these people, and that was one always does, of course, and that was wonderful. But it's no, and really at 91, I'm not sure that I. So I shall write another, but I, I, one should never say never, who knows. But it will, will not be a repetition of this. No, I'm not going to start on Emma next. <laughs> P.D. James. If you've enjoyed this interview, there are plenty more to explore on the Faber website at faber.co.uk or simply type Faber Podcasts into a search engine. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber interview. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.